BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. So I got my email this morning from Social Security Works. <laughs> Today would be a great day for Joe Biden to fire Social Security Administration Commissioner Andrew Saul and Deputy Commissioner David Black. Yeah, these two Trumpies are still running the Social Security Administration, making it harder for people to access their benefits, making it easier to strip people of disability benefits, stuff like that. But that's just the stuff that's like bubbled up to the surface, uh, up to the very top. There's a fascinating piece published over at Common Dreams titled Advocates Sound Alarm Over Quiet Trump-Era Move That Could Further Privatize Medicare. And I'm like, whoa, Medicare works really, really well, at least in my experience. I've been on it for five years and I love it. So what's the deal? Let's check in with our old buddy, Alex Lawson, executive director of Social Security Works. SocialSecurityWorks.org is the website, also StrengthenSocialSecurity.org. And Alex, of course, you can tweet him at SSWorks or at ALaw202. Alex, welcome back to the program. Tell me about this uh, this Trump. What little trick are they trying to play here with us on Social Security? You know, in a lot of our discussions, you talk about how they've drilled holes in Medicare. That's where they insert the for-profit companies into our public programs. And this is that, exactly that. I'm really happy to be talking about it with you because usually it takes us a lot longer to bubble these attacks up to the surface because they are so wonky so behind the scenes. They're buried deep in the rules and regulations. This is a uh, project that they are doing. It's just an investigation in how to make Medicare more efficient, as they say. But really what it is, is it's put together by the for-profit insurers. They got it in during Trump. It directs traditional Medicare to basically without people knowing what's going on. You know, they might get a piece of paper saying that this is happening, but is, are people going to follow it? Doubtful, based on history. And what it does is it just shifts people over to a managed care situation where you go from traditional Medicare, where if you get sick, you go to the doctor or you get injured, you go to the hospital, you get the care that you need, full stop, that's it. In this one, there are networks again, right? So there's incentives put in for these corporations who are running it to keep you in network. And that means there's out of network and there are fees and all sorts of 
things that we don't know what powers they're going to be given. But we do know that the only way that private insurers make money is by taking our premiums and denying our care. It's the denying our care that they're being given the power to do again in the form of what is going to be an investigation in improving the efficiency of Medicare. But we've seen that. So before. it sounds As like, you know, that's how Medicare Advantage was sold to us. I was just going to say, it sounds like they are trying to force everybody into Medicare Advantage. I mean, if, if you sign up for Medicare Advantage, which is a tragic thing to do, frankly, but if you sign up for Medicare Advantage, Odds are you're going to end up with a private insurance company that says, okay, you have to go to this doctor, you have to go to that hospital. If you go to any other doctor or any other hospital, you are going to have to pay for it out of your pocket. There's a whole list of things here that we won't pay for. We don't cover surprise billings. We don't cover out-of-network stuff. And people think, oh, it's wonderful. I got Medicare Advantage. Now I can get a free eye exam or I can get my teeth cleaned. And, and they don't realize that once they get sick, all hell is going to break loose and they're going to get 10, 20, you know, 30,000, $100,000 bills. Not only that, before their doctors can do anything, a relative of mine went into his doctor the other day. He's over 65 on Medicare and he's on regular Medicare, just like me. The doctor said, well, I think you need this, but I've got to check with your insurer first. And my relative said, what are you talking about? I have Medicare. And, he, and the doctor was like, oh, you don't have Medicare Advantage? And he was like, no, I have regular Medicare. And he was like, oh, good, good. We're fine then. You know, I can just good. order this test. But it sounds like the way this is going to work is they're going to pick certain parts of the country and some people are going to get a letter that says all of your Medicare services, instead of just going to any doctor you want or any hospital you know, and getting any tests that they think you need, and Medicare will just pay for it, instead, you're going to have to go to this particular network for this particular PPO, and you're now enrolled in Kaiser, or you're now enrolled in United Health or something like that. Is that how it's going to work? One of the most despicable things is... The reason that doctor phrased it that way is because most people don't know, you know, like your relative was able to say, no, I'm in traditional Medicare. But most people don't know that they, they just think, oh, this is Medicare. Right. They're not going right. to know that they've been put into some other thing. They're going to get a notice, but it's going to be very confusing. And they certainly aren't going to highlight in the first sentence. This means that your care can now be denied. Oh, and by the way, you don't get a choice on it. And in fact, it's worse than that, Tom, because people did get a choice. They chose traditional Medicare, right? And then this is overriding that choice and saying, we're going to put you into this managed care situation. Again, what managed care means is they make more money by denying you care. That's the Correct. only way these companies make money. And I, I know you know this, but for your listeners and viewers, I think people should appreciate that the the cash cow for these private corporate insurers now is actually getting these types of uh, contracts with uh, the government. These, that's where they're making so much money. And so this is a very lucrative business for the corporate insurers. Uh, and we have to fight it back, knowing that they're not going to just stop here. Uh, this is just one of the holes that they're trying to drill in Medicare. Right. And, and in fact, these two uh, people who are running Medicaid, the, the Social Security uh, Administration right now, were, were apparently instrumental in putting this into place. And Biden does need to fire them both. What, what, can, uh, what can people do? How can we speak out? Who, who, who do we direct this to? As you said, this, you know, it could sound very, very wonky. And, and I'm guessing that probably the majority of legislators have no idea that this is even going on. What can we do, Alex Lawson? 
Luckily, we have Social Security Works. We have our senior advisor on Medicare, Diane Archer, who is really the person who has turned it into a more public-facing campaign. So if you come to SocialSecurityWorks.org, we're staying on top of this. But you're exactly right. We went to Senator Wyden, who is critical on these fights is true champion of Social Security. Uh, and he was really clear. No one knows what this is. No one except wow. the lobbyists for those corporate insurers who got it in know what it is. So the first thing we need to do is we need to educate congressional offices that this exists and that it's a danger to traditional Medicare, to our Medicare. So that is what people can do on their own. They can call their members of Congress, call their senators, let them know that they don't want any experimenting with handing over our Medicare to these corporations to profit from, and just get offices familiar with that. That actually works, as you know, and we talk about all the Mm. time. Offices do listen. And so if they start hearing about this, then when we go in there on the inside, it's not just us in D.C., it's coming from both sides. But that's where we are. We need to educate people about this attack vector. So go to two things, two steps. Number one, go to SocialSecurityWorks.org, get on their mailing list and read all about it, number one. Number two, call 202-224-3121 and talk to your member of the House and both of your senates and educate them. Alex Lawson, hang on just a second, Alex. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Alex, thank you again for dropping by. You have been such a great resource over the years and such a good friend of this show. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, as always. On the line with us, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also available now as an e-book over at his websites, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com. Uh, you can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. You have talked before about how capitalism always goes in these basically six to ten year cycles of boom and bust. You, you have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of relatively steady expansion, and then you have a recession. You have a collapse, and it, and it kind of gathers itself back together, sheds whatever bizarre excesses may have accumulated, and then starts all over again. And the question I wanted to put to you I'm seeing articles that are essentially arguing this. There was one in the Financial Times day before yesterday. The argument goes, yes, the stock market is, and the economy, for that matter, is going to continue to grow over the next four or five years because we just had our recession. It was last year. It was 2020. And the counter-argument, of course, is, but the stock market didn't go down. Well, it did you know, for a couple of months, but, or for a month, I guess. But then the counter-argument to that is, uh, yeah, the stock market didn't go down, but all that wild excess of capitalism in other markets, labor markets and everything else, that all got flushed out. And so we're starting a new upswing. What say you? Well, let's go back to the premise. Every six to ten years, actually, the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is sort of the timekeeper officially that we in the economics profession go to, uses the number four to seven. But remember, that's an average. It's understood that sometimes the cycle will last longer, like your six to ten years. Sometimes it'll last a shorter time, two to four. And we've had all of that kind of variation around the average. So even if you believe 
that the last year, 2020, and this beginning of 2021 is a kind of crash, which it clearly was, almost as bad as the Great Depression, well then, yes, it's possible that you will have an upswing. But there are reasons to be very cautious about believing that. And the reason is precisely the extraordinary, unusual things that happened over the last year and a half. We've never had, for example, anything remotely like the printing of money and the dumping of money into the economy during a downturn of the sort we've had over the last uh, 16 months nor have we ever had it after a period of eight or nine years of also extraordinary money printing. So that's a completely new situation whose consequences nobody can foresee. Number two, also unusual, is that we have a really powerful major economic competitor, the People's Republic of China. And a great deal of the consumer growth that may happen in the United States if, and notice these ifs, if vaccinations work, and if we don't have a recurrence of a strain of the virus that we weren't prepared for, etc then a lot of the consumer growth will be purchases of Chinese-produced uh, goods and services, which will stimulate their economy uh, as much, if not more, than our own. Uh, I could go on, but there are so many special circumstances that some kind of uh, generalization of these cycles, as if we can rely, uh, that makes no sense. And you could see it uh, with uh, Fed Chairman Powell when he announced yesterday that interest rates are going to be kept at or near zero probably into 2024, that is almost three years from now, uh, that's his way of saying he's not at all sure we're going to have an upswing, and he is in no mood uh, to do anything other than keep pumping up the economy with very low interest rates and money creation like they have been doing. And that was my follow-up question. The central bank, the Fed, expects that the U.S. economy is going to expand at 6.5% next year. The the uh, IMF is saying something very similar. In fact, they predicted a 1% increase above what they were already predicting for the entire world economy as a result of the, the American Rescue Plan, Joe Biden's legislation. And didn't Japan, like 25 years ago, start basically doing the same thing? And it led to, some would argue, stability. Others would argue stagflation. But Japanese didn't lose their jobs. They didn't lose their health care They, you know, because they had government guarantees, by and large, of both things. They didn't lose their educational opportunities. Are there lessons to learn from that? I, I realize I might be muddling these things together when they're not necessarily connected, but it seems like they are. Absolutely. Japan went on a money-creating binge ever since the collapse of their bubble back in 1990, and they're still not out of the woods. They've had a depressed economy for 30 years. The absolute explosive dominance of Japan as the great other to the United States 
that was daily conversation in the 1970s and 1980s and into the 1990s is ancient history now. Everything is focused on China because Japan's economic footprint in the world, while still significant, is nothing like A, what it was, and B, what it was predicted to be. Yes, they've held on. They are much more social democratic society than the United States. They've kept up their institutions uh, better than we have here in this country, but they have been paying a complicated long-term economic price for what they have been doing and their inability to restart their economy to compete as they had thought they could with the People's Republic of China. So I I would argue, yeah, there might be an uptick, but my guess is it will be limp and lame. We still have 20 million plus people out of work in this country. Those are people who are consuming goods and services but not producing them. The participation of our people in the labor force is at a historic low uh, compared to what it has been. We had a lot of headwind even before thinking about unexpected events which could come in, particularly in the political area. When Mr. Biden attacks the Russians and the Chinese and drops bombs in Syria and talks about the Space Force, he sounds to the rest of the world, and I've been reading headlines this morning around the world, he sounds like Mr. Trump in large parts of the world, and how they're going to react, and I'm particularly focused on the Europeans who are being threatened with sanctions if they trade with Cuba or Iran or China, a level of unknowns that explain why Mr. Powell, who says, yep, the economy is going to do better, is still not taking this economy off the life support of endless money creation and virtually zero interest rates so that everybody can borrow limitlessly at almost no cost. In the end, that will have to be paid for, and no one knows exactly how or when that will hit. Do you think that's our new normal for a while? We're already in it. We've been on this kind of life support now for a long time. Companies are adjusting to it, and I think it is going to cost us and not so distant future either. Thank you very much. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf.com, Prof Wolf over on Twitter. Professor Wolf, thanks again for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Thank you, Tom. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. 
VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Terry in Gainesville, Florida. Hey, Terry, what's up? You had a Medicare Advantage question? Yes, actually in Dade City, Florida. So I don't know why it's coming mm -hmm. from Gainesville. But anyway, okay. I signed up for Medicare Advantage over a year ago, and they have paid a lot for everything. In fact, my uh, my insulin went to no copay on my insulin, and I used one of the high-priced insulins. And I just mm -hmm. had some heart procedures done. And so far, so good. They paid for everything. I only had a $25 copay when I went in the hospital. So my question is, I That's guess, good. why should I be unhappy with it? What you want to do is find out where the loopholes are, where the gotchas are. Do you have to participate, for example, with a particular network? Are you in a PPO plan, I think they're called, or, or you know, an, an in-network versus out-of-network plan? Do you know? I have to be in-network, and uh, it's, a, it's a PPP, HMO-type plan. Right. So the way that you get screwed with those kind of plans typically is if you're out of town and you get sick or you get injured, you can't get to one of the approved doctors or hospitals, you're going to have to pay the entire bill. And so if you're in another state where, you know, there's there's not somebody in that plan and you get in a car accident or something and you end up, you know, in the hospital for a month, you could be a million dollars in debt, number one. Number two, uh, the whole surprise billing thing is, it has grown out of these PPPs, which is, or PPOs or whatever they're called, um, which is where the hospitals, um, increasingly these for-profit hospitals, what they're doing is rather than having, for example, an anesthesiologist, it's almost always the people that you don't have any interaction with, you never meet. But say they have an anesthesiologist that instead of being an employee of the hospital, this person is their, their anesthesiology group contracts with the hospital and wh whichever doctor happens to show up on that day is the guy who puts you under and monitors you during your surgery. That person may well not be part of your network. In fact, that's almost 100% of the time when people complain about suddenly getting a $25,000 bill after going to the hospital and going, what the hell is this? That's what happens is it's called, you know, these out of network uh, billing events that happen within in-network hospitals. And that's growing, and I guarantee you there's nothing in your Medicare Advantage plan that will prevent that from happening. Um, a well-run hospital that you know is trying to maintain their reputation uh, rather than trying to make profits might prevent that from happening, but you're basically at the mercy of those folks. Whereas if you have regular Medicare, it covers you everywhere in the country, under all circumstances, in every hospital, and with every doctor. Now, all they have to do is take Medicare, which is the vast majority. I mean, there's some pediatricians that don't take Medicare for obvious reasons, but am I making sense, Terry? Do you get it? Yes, but I noticed on my Medicare when I was uh, going through this whole thing that on Medicare the copays are were outrageous for medicines and they only paid eighty percent. Yeah, it's true. Well, you've got that donut hole. You want to sign up for Medicare Part D and it pays the first up to what twenty five hundred bucks or thereabouts, and then you pay all of it yourself. And then after it gets above what is it five thousand something like that, it picks it back up. And you can buy policies to cover that. But you have to get a separate Medicare D policy, which mine is $30 a month. And then you have to get a separate Medigap policy that goes along with your Medicare. And mine is like 150 bucks a month. 
and that then covers you. But yeah, you're, you're having to pay for these things, but on the other hand, you're getting something of value. Terry, I gotta run, but thank you for the call. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's up? Hey, Tom. I'm hoping either you or maybe one of your listeners might have some advice on what we can do regarding the stimulus check. I've already gotten mine, but a family member lost his job in November of 2019. It was a good-paying job, and so some of that stimulus that he would have gotten, he didn't because of his income. But he lost his job 16 months ago, just now got a new one. And so he had no income for 2020 at all. He didn't get that $600 stimulus at all. He had to apply that towards his tax return when he filled that out this past month for last year. Mm-hmm. What I'm wondering is, he's not gotten that $1,400 stimulus check either. Is there someone at the IRS that he should call and ask, where is it? Because he had no income. None. Two suggestions, Sandra. Number one, tell him to file his 2020 tax returns lickety split so that he's got it yeah, documented he that he had no income. Yeah, okay, he's great. done that. And then yeah. number two, uh, I don't know who represents Omaha, Nebraska, you know, in, oh, the, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Well, that's okay. Republicans. Republicans can help out, too. Uh, you no, know, just don't. don't call up and say, hi, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> But yeah. no, even Republicans have somebody in their office. There, you know, Congress actually provides funds for this for this position. It's called constituent services. So what you yeah. want to do is you you call 202-224-3121, get to your member of the House, and say, I'd like to speak to your constituent services person. I've got a problem with my with my uh, COVID uh, relief check or pay, you know whatever you want to call it, stimulus check, and uh, that person can help guide you through the labyrinth and sometimes even uh, directly connect you to people. So that's okay. that's always the best and first place to start. Yeah, because he's okay. already gotten what little of a return he was going to get. You know, yeah. got that. Yeah. But the fourteen hundred yeah. stimulus check, not at all. So. Yeah. No. He's he, yeah. and and he obviously qualifies for it. So take that yeah. step first. That's the best thing. You know, you call the IRS and you'll end up on hold forever. Uh, Marie in New York City. Hey, Marie, what's up? I want to suggest that talking about cancel culture, labor and labor history has been canceled out altogether. There's no right. labor education it's in the schools. There's a wonderful book that the UE Union in Pittsburgh put out years ago called Labor's Untold Story. People are workers, unless you're a coupon clipper. There needs to be some kind of labor history month or labor. Labor needs to come to, the labor history needs to be taught in the schools. People are workers. I don't care if you're raking leaves or in a hospital curing brain cancer. You are a worker, and this needs to be presented in schools across the country. I agree, Marie. Remember the days when there used to be a labor section in the newspaper right next to the business section? Absolutely, and there used yeah. to be the Labor Day parades. Until here it all in went York. away in the 80s. It all went away with Reagan. Marie, I'm sorry we're out of time, but your point is so well made. I love your accent, by the way. Point so well made. It's going to be a state-by-state battle, I suspect. Although, you know, it's not not a bad thing to ring up your member of the House of Representatives or your two senators and and uh, put the bug in their ear too. 
Just a tip of the hat, by the way, to uh, Jeffrey Armbruster, who tweeted to me the IRS website on how to get your payment. And it turns out, you know, I clicked back to irs.gov, which is really easy to remember if you're listening right now. Because I've had a couple of people call and say, I haven't gotten my money. Where, how do I get my money? Right. And if you click through, if you go to irs.gov, the top, literally the top button that you can click is get my payment. So start there. I, and I've been telling people, you know, file your taxes, call your congressman or woman. You can do all that stuff, but you might want to start at irs.gov, assuming that you have access to the internet, you know, and, and, you know, reasonable access to the internet. Kate in New York City. Hey, Kate, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind? Regarding the stimulus payments, I got, all right, my, my adjusted gross income in 2019 was like 95000 so I got the first payment, I got like $900, and I got nothing for the second or the third because it was based on 2019. Now, in 2020, I made like $30,000, and I'm heavily in debt right now. And so I'm not getting anything for the second. I didn't get anything for the second payment, and I'm not getting anything for the third because, like I said, they're basing it on 2019. So my question is, can you when you file your taxes, apply for some sort of a reimbursement based on the fact that 2019 is kind of irrelevant. And if not, why not? I'm pretty sure you can, but I can't say that with, you know, 100% certainty, Kate. My understanding is that if you made too much in 2019 to be eligible for 20, you know, for this 2021 I wouldn't call it a stimulus. I call it the rescue plan. Yeah. Then, you know, the, the, the two ways around that is, number one, very quickly file your 2020 tax returns. Get that done as quickly as you can so you are on the record officially with the IRS as having made less money so that you are eligible for this payment. And in fact, the IRS is extended, by the way. It's not May 15th this year. It's going to be May, excuse me, it's not April 15th this year. It's going to be May 17th. Right. But, uh, you know, file your tax returns right away so you've got that proof that you made that much less. And then I believe you would just contact the IRS. But I'm, the who you contact next is what I don't know for sure. And that's why I, w- I would suggest you ask your member of Congress. And I'll try to remember ask, to ask Congressman Cano when he comes on. Okay? That'd be great. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks a lot. Scott in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Scott, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. I heard earlier this week with uh, Mark Pocan, there was a caller who mentioned the amount of interest uh, he paid on his student loans. And I was doing my taxes at the same time. And uh, as it turns out, I realized in the last 10 years, I've paid over $75,000 in interest. And my student loan debt principal has gone down $15,000. Wow. I started out so at 131000 is... I've been paying, never missed the payment. I owe still 116000 and my so interest in 10 years has been over seventy five grand. So they're amortizing these things the same way that they do mortgages, which means that if you want to get ahead of the curve, what you need to be doing is making an extra 10 bucks or an extra 100 bucks or whatever you can afford in payments every single month and applying that to the principal, just like that's how you take a 30-year house mortgage and turn it into a 20-year mortgage is by you know paying an extra 100 bucks a month or whatever the amount would be and if getting it applied money, to the principal. That's great, but you know, I don't always yeah. have an extra 100 bucks to throw it. You know. I get it. 
I totally get so it. Anyway. Yeah, we, we just need to declare all of this stuff a giant fraud on the American people. This is a legacy of Reaganism. Prior to Reaganism, you could go to college working a part-time job at minimum wage and put yourself through college back in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, even the early 80s until, until Bill Bennett's stuff really started taking a bite. Ask any old fart, anybody over 60. There was not a th- student debt was not a thing in America. People didn't, you know, unless people were going to go to graduate school or, or get an MD, they, they were not running into student debt. So we need to just say, and we've got $1.7 trillion now of student debt in the United States, which is still less than Donald Trump's tax cuts for billionaires. If he can just give that money to billionaires and say, here, it's fine, and all the Republicans can applaud and America can tolerate it and the ceiling didn't fall in, why the hell can't we do that with people who have student debt? Just wipe it all out. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Please do. I'm, I'm for it. Thank you, Scott. And then going forward, what we should say as a nation is we're going to join the rest of the countries of the world, the developed countries of the world, and recognize that part of our most important infrastructure is our intellectual infrastructure. It's our young people. It's, it's the ability of people to go to college. Socializing losses, privatizing gains. This caught my eye. This is from the uh, New York Times deal book. Uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin writes this uh, kind of daily newsletter that I subscribe to on, on the New York Times. He notes major U.S. airlines have received more than $50 billion in grants in multiple rounds of taxpayer-funded bailouts during the uh, pandemic, which saved 75,000 jobs. But just think about this for a minute, Okay. Louise and I were talking with a friend of ours in the UK last week, and I was like, you know, how's how's the UK dealing with this stuff? And he's like, well, you get 80% of your salary, 80% of whatever you're not making that you would have made. I mean, it's just the government, I don't recall if he said the government passes it through your company or if the government pays you directly. I know in Germany, they pass it through the company. I know in Norway, they pay you directly. So, But, you know, basically most of the other developed countries in the world, they're just saying, you know, whatever you used to make, we'll just give you that money. So you can stay, you know, your company has to keep you on the books as an employee, but it's not their expense anymore. We'll pick up the expense. But as Andrew Ross Sarkin points out in this piece in the New York Times, quote, with the original grant of $25 billion, which, by the way, is half of what the airlines have gotten now so far. But this was the first piece of legislation passed back when, when Trump was president that was heavily weighted toward big corporations. He says, with that original grant of $25 billion, that implies that each job costs the equivalent of more than $300,000. So in order to get the airlines to keep flight attendants and other employees at work who are probably making between thirty and $60,000 a year, depending on you know, what their job level is and what their entry level is. And I know, you know some of the commuter airlines, they make you know, in the 20s, actually. In order to keep those people on the job, you and I, through our tax dollars, gave their corporations $300,000 per person. And that was just the first half of the stimulus that went to the airlines. That was the first... 25 billion, we've given them 50 billion. So where did the rest of the money go? Well, Andrew Ross Serkin, the New York Times, points it out. The biggest beneficiaries were airline shareholders. That includes the carrier's executives who've been paid in stock for years. Propped up by taxpayers, airline stocks are up nearly 200% and have largely recovered their losses. So we doubled the pay of the senior executives of the airlines. We gave them $300,000 for each one of their employees. 
They were still on the verge of laying everybody off until this new bill was passed. You know, American Airlines just came out a couple days ago, the, the CEO of American Airlines. He came out and he held this press conference saying, oh, this is great. With this new bailout, we can keep people on the payroll. Well, wait a minute. We gave you $300,000 per employee with the first half of the first bailout. Well, you know, if you're paying your people $50,000 a year, and that's, you know, including wages and benefits and, and pension, and isn't that enough for six years? Where's my math going wrong here? It's the Republican death cult, right? Give money to the rich people, screw the working people. Or if you're going to be forced, and this is essentially what, you know, what the first bailout was, was forcing the Republicans to go, oh, yeah, okay, we're going to have to help people out. I guess we got a pandemic, and Trump screwed up the response to it, and so let's just throw some money at it. And if we've got to help people keep their jobs, we're not going to do it in a way that doesn't cost the government a lot of money, the way that Canada's doing it, or Germany is doing it, or France is doing it, or England is doing it, or Norway is doing it. We're not going to just pass money right through to the employees. No, no, we're going to do it trickle-down. We're going to give $300,000 per job to the airlines, and that's with the first $25 billion of stimulus. We're going to give $300,000 per job and beg them to hang on to that $50,000 a year person for the next 12 months. And it hasn't even been 12 months, by the way. It's been like 10 months. And they spent the $300,000, plus they got a whole another $25 billion, another $300,000. So we've given them $600,000 per employee and American Airlines is like, yeah, we're going to have to lay them off anyway. Oh, thank you. Another stimulus. At what point does America say enough? Joe Biden is talking about raising the uh, corporate income tax back up to 28%. It has not been below 28% in my lifetime. Except for last year and the year before. Trump dropped it down to 21%, which is crazy. It just depleted the revenue in the Treasury Department. And the Republicans are all huffing and puffing. Oh, he's going to create a crash. He's going to... Yeah, right. This is the hijacking of our democracy by a death cult. The GOP. Prove me wrong. Show me what I'm missing. You know, one person said, no, wait a minute. Maybe their primary goal isn't killing people. Maybe it's greed. Well, how does Christy Nome make money out of killing people in South Dakota? I don't get it. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. How does Greg Abbott make money out of killing people in Texas? Maybe fewer people on Medicaid? Karen in Cleveland, Ohio. Hey, Karen, what's on your mind today? I wanted to support your thesis on death cults the death cult of the Republican Party by pointing out a parallel between the Republican Party and the 1930s and 1940s death camps in Germany and around Germany. Over their entrances, uh, several of them had the sign Arbeit macht frei. Uh, mm-hmm. Work makes, work makes free. you free. And that seems to parallel pretty well with the Koch brothers entity of Freedom Works. Same words. Yeah, freedom works. You're absolutely right. It's it's Arbeit macht frei. Wow, I hadn't that hadn't even occurred to me, and I get their newsletter. Yeah, well, well that's a good one. That came to me today. Yeah, that is short and sweet and uh, and brilliant. Thank you very much for that, Karen. I appreciate it. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Just call 
sounds a little hyperbolic for me. I know it feels good, but I'm thinking about your catch line when the water cooler wars or when sitting around the table with uh, one of my brothers, one of my right-wing brothers, if my brother says, Hillary Clinton eats babies, you know, she's a can- baby cannibal, am I going to return with, what the Republican Party's a death cult, right? That, that just, that's, not, <laughs> that's not going anywhere. But I would I prefer would. this. Okay, well, I would prefer <laughs> one of your uh, former back it up. strategies, <laughs> which, would, which is that, no, the Republican Party hasn't passed or supported a policy that's helped anybody but the ultra-rich for 160 years. In fact, since the Emancipation Proclamation, that's where I'd go. And yeah. challenge it to, to just name one. Come on, forget about the baby eating, because they know that's hyperbole. Forget about the baby eating. Hillary Clinton eats babies. Tell me what policies that the Republican Party has passed or supported in the last 160 years since the Civil War that helped people, that helped regular people like, like you. And... They can't, because you look at, after the war, we had Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, right? Then we had the Lochner era after that. Since Franklin Roosevelt, all they've been trying to do is undo the New Deal. They haven't passed Well, with the exception of Eisenhower, yeah. Eisenhower's years were basically uh, riding on Franklin Roosevelt years, and the Eisenhower years were not actually, by comparison, anywhere near close to the economic growth. All of the... Uh, Roosevelt years, there was on average, the 12 years that Franklin Roosevelt was in office, 12 plus years, was averaged 8.8% growth. Kennedy Johnson years, 5.1% growth. The Eisenhower years were pretty low. They they were actually down in the 2 and 3. And then, of course, the Nixon years were not... Really, the, the problem is, Tom, is all of the boasting that we allow the Republicans to do Without arguing back, I think kind of the Obama years of, oh, we, we, we've all been just way too magnanimous. Oh, we don't like to blow our horn. Well, we better. We better. Because when you look at, by the way, I haven't noticed any Republicans really cheering the Biden economy. Remember that time, the sacred number, that sacred 30,000 number that the stock market hit on Tuesday, November 24th, 2020, three weeks after Donald Trump was, was ousted because that was right. optimism about Joe Biden. The magic sacred number of 30,000 was optimism about Joe Biden coming in and getting rid of Donald Trump. And I haven't heard a single Republican crowing about the fact that we've got 10 percent in 58 days. The stock market has grown 10 percent past 30,000. Do you hear the Republicans talking about that? I don't. Yeah. Yeah. No, neither do I. Excellent points all, Paul. And, and you know, I, I get it. And by saying death cult, I'm dancing on the edge of hyperbole. But I also list a whole series of things, Republican policies that lead directly to death. I'm going to stand by that. Paul, thank you for the call. Jim in Chicago. Hey, Jim, what's up? 20-year flight attendant for a major airline. And I wanted to chime in. You were just talking about airlines and all this money they got. So I have, you know, quite a bit of seniority. And before the pandemic, I was making about 135000 a year flying five That's days a week. Yeah, it was great. You know, my husband's been unemployed for two years now. So I was able to support us. And once the pandemic struck, you know, airline flights just came to a halt. My status went from being able to pretty much pick my schedule to on call. And my income now is about... 45, 40, 45,000 a year. 
Mm. And my understanding was that this money was to protect payroll. So everybody could get paid what they were getting paid. Yeah, they gave your airline $600,000 per employee. Apparently it hasn't trickled down. It has not. And it's not going to. I want Congress to, they need to look into this. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's wrong. It's wrong. Um, And I have had no opportunity to pick up flights because I'm on call. Uh, You know, I go to work when they call me. Every few weeks, they basically send out emails to everybody, like begging people to take unpaid leaves. And a lot of people take them. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be offering these leads like they were given money to pay people. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. If they're being given six hundred grand per employee, you would expect that some of that money would end up in the pockets of the employees. But this is American big business. This isn't, you know, European exactly. big business. It's, it's, you know, it's not. Yeah. So, uh, Jim, thank you for sharing your story with us. I didn't realize flight attendants were making that much these days, but uh, that's probably a well, reflection more of your 20 years of seniority than anything else. I, it's 20 years of seniority plus I, you know, I did fly a lot. I, I would pick up in yeah. addition to my regular schedule. So, I so did what, what, I flight, to do what to do flight attendants hire in at right now? I think the starting pay right now is in the high 20s. So like maybe 28 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. And right now with my seniority, I make about 70 an hour. Which, which is now, around strictly, 28 bucks an hour is around what? 60,000, $55,000 a year. Somewhere around fifty, like I would guess. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I got in a conversation with. I know a person who is an airline pilot for one of the small commuter airlines, and well, Michael Moore pointed this out actually in his movie a couple a couple of years ago that the pilots for some of these small commuter airlines are making less than a manager at a Burger King. They were making. They were starting at like twenty eight thousand a year. Not dollars an hour, a thousand a year. And this person was telling me that the flight attendants for their airline were starting at $30,000 a year, which is $15 an hour. You know, it's like, whoa. Okay, Jim, thank you. Thanks for the education. And uh, I share your outrage. Good luck doing something about it. Denny in, uh, on the Big Island in Hawaii. Hey, Denny, what's up? Oh, hi, Tom. Thank you so much. I just wanted to call and add something to the mix. I think that the Republican death cult is made up of what I call spiritual assassins. Their goal is to kill our spirit at least, and I believe that that is at the essence of the cult tactics. That's the first job of a slaveholder, slave owner, was to break people. I mean, they literally had people called slave breakers, like you break a horse, you break its will. They broke human beings. And it sure seems to me like 40 years of Reaganomics has broken a lot of Americans, particularly a lot of working class Americans. Not to mention, you know, how how much worse it is for people who are in various minority groups. They are the spiritual assassins. That's where I see them as the death cult. That's that's their tactic. That's their essence. So thank you for taking the call. I just wanted to add that to the mix. And we love your show. You're welcome. Thank you, Danny. If you go back to the 1950s, you had Republican thinkers like Russell Kirk and William F. Buckley Jr. and Barry Goldwater warning that if the middle class ever got rich enough, you would see social chaos. You'd see young people rebelling. You'd see women, you know, not no longer depending on their husbands. You would see workers rising up. And sure enough, all that happened in the 60s. And so they decided that they were going to take the middle class down a peg. And, and you know, that's what's going on here. And in the consequence, lots and lots of people are having their lives destroyed. Suicide rates are up. Death rates are up. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career? 
Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's up? This call is about three problematic words in our future about the infrastructure, public-private partnerships. Yeah, I've been very concerned about the oligarchs storing their money offshore, and I've postulated before that it's to eventually buy the infrastructure and the commons in the United States. There needed to be an event to have that happen. I think this, this COVID thing, not that it was intended to do that, but the net result is that we've really, you know, gone into quite a bit of debt to do that. So now when they move into the infrastructure, I think that these billionaires and oligarchs are going to say, oh, you don't want to raise taxes? Well, I can buy this for you. So so that's yeah. just something that we have to be very careful of. Now, we got two great people on our side, which is Bernie and Liz Warren, okay? And Bernie, um, it's so clear to me now why Bloomberg stepped in and basically wiped out Bernie because Bloomberg is part of the oligarch class, and Bernie would have no such thing as this. So anyway, yeah. there's something to keep an eye on here. Public-private partnership. Look out. I'm with you, Robin. These public-private partnerships have just devastated a number of states and communities around the country over the last 40 years. They do them with schools. They do them with other things. And uh, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a sneak attack. Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? How can we make the minimum wage a county-by-county county living wage uh, without lowering uh, employment among high school graduates, uh, 16 to 19-year-olds, and small businesses? Well, if the minimum wage, you know, if, if the conservative hit on the minimum wage is that it's only teenagers, um, and the fact of the matter is that more than 70%, if I'm remembering correctly, you can Google this and double-check my numbers, but it's, it's a substantial majority of minimum wage workers are, are not just adults, but they're over 30. I mean, these, these, there are a lot of people working at the minimum wage full-time. That was very much not the case in the 1960s, which is, I think, the, the decade that, that these conservatives' heads are stuck in. But even if we're talking about, even if we're talking about having minimum wage workers who are young, they should be entitled to make 15 bucks an hour. I mean, I, is there a, an argument to the point you're making, Dennis? No, it's more like a question. Um, I've heard you say before that you believe people who are young uh, should have an exception, right? Exemption from the minimum wage. Well, right? yeah, under 16. 16 and under or 17 and under. I mean, say in some cases, well, you've got kids who are working in family businesses. You've got kids who are working on the farm. Um, you know, sometimes they're paid, sometimes they're not. I mean, but... but uh, that that would be it. I mean, I you know I think if somebody's old, you know, uh, the age majority, if they're certainly if they're 18 or older, the, they should be considered an adult and they should be paid as an adult. And there are a lot of people who are 18 years old, not a huge number, but there's a substantial number of Americans who are 18 years old who are actually heads of household. I was at one point. Robert in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Robert, what's up? My comment okay. is about when you said the Republicans are death cult. Well, I would go one step further and. Say that they're a Christian death cult. 
Mm. And my I can't is, disagree with oh, that. Okay. And my what, what's it, what's is, the basis though for that assertion? What 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 is your argument around that? Well, my argument is that all the Republicans say that they're Christians and they follow Jesus and <clears throat> they have to kind of pass all of these laws and like I don't know I think it's something to do with like because of what's in the Bible and everything like that like I don't know if you understand what I'm trying to say I get that there are parts of the Bible that are bloody and there are places in the Bible where God commands his people to kill people or to abort babies or you know to enslave people um, but I, I don't think, generally speaking, that today's Christians are, well, maybe they are hewing to that. I don't know. Okay. You were going to make another point, Robert, or was that, that your Yes, I have a question. Do you mm -hmm. think that if the Republicans identified any other religion except Christianity, do you think that they'd be able to get away with, like, even half of the stuff they're doing? Yes, Modi is doing the same thing in India, and he's doing it in the name of Hinduism and Hindu nationalism. And, you know, he's trashing Muslims, and, and in fact, there's been lots and lots of murders of Muslims across India now as a consequence of Modi's policies. Um, you know, Hitler did it with Christianity. Uh, Trump and Bush and, and, uh, and Reagan did it with Christianity here. Um, uh, in, in Myanmar, it's being done in the name of Buddhism which is bizarre because Buddhism is the most pacifistic of all the religions. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the, the murder of the, the Rohingya, I believe it is, um, yeah. uh, who are a Muslim minority, um, has been done in large part, you know, invoking uh, Buddhist nationalism. So I, I don't think that any religion is immune from that. Robert, I, th I think that, you know, the, 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 regardless of the beliefs, the thing that is the most powerful part of any religion is the tribalism, is the community, is the, is the you know, the, this is, these are my people. And uh, once we, I, once we yeah. draw a circle around ourselves and say, these are, this is my circle, these are my people, then we have automatically, on the other side of that circle, identified everybody else as an other. And others yeah, are not like as consequential as us. Yeah, you know, like if I do something, it's okay. But if you do something, then it's not okay. As long as you're an other, you know, if you're my brother, if you're my family, if you're my neighbor, and we're close, if you if you are somebody that I identify with, if we're members of the same religion, and uh, and particularly if we feel persecuted, which is one of the most powerful things that will bring people in a religion together, which is you know the the literally the whole shtick of Fox News, and 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 largely the shtick of a lot of uh, fundamentalist preachers, then yeah, that very much becomes the case. Robert, Robert, thank you for the call. Regs in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Regs, what's on your mind today? Hi, how you doing, Tom? Uh, I realize this Good. is linear thinking, and I'm certainly no banking expert or anything like that, but I saw a documentary some time ago about fractional banking and how mm -hmm. the 10% that's held in reserve with the 90% go into investment. Uh, this was done just after the, the, the Great Depression. Uh, prior to the Great Depression, the money used to say on it, this note backed by gold, and ever since the fractional banking, now it's uh, considered legal tender. I was wondering how mm -hmm. much of that uh, uh, fractional banking was uh, ruining the, the value of the dollar. 
and that maybe we're just too many people with not enough money to go around. Yeah, uh, well, I think you're mixing two different topics up there, but uh, the value of the dollar has been declining in, in part because of fractional banking it's, uh, mm-hmm. and in part because the Fed regulates the money supply. Um, although the money supply is expanded or contracted by banks loaning money into an existence, that expands the money supply. And then taking those loans out, retiring those loans, that contracts the money supply, although the interest is left over as profit for the banks. It's sort of like a game of musical chairs. Um, but uh, during times of economic expansion or low interest rates, you have the, uh, a huge expansion of the money supply because banks are loaning more and more money in. During times of contraction, you have a contraction of the money supply and money becomes actually more valuable, uh, which is called deflation, the opposite of inflation. But, you know, we've seen this over the years. Um, the problem, the reason why the transition was made from the gold standard to fractional banking was that if you have a million dollars, you know, to simplify, hyper simplify things. If you have an economy that generates a million dollars worth of activity and you have a million dollars worth of gold in Fort Knox, then every dollar is worth one dollar, right? Um, right? It's worth one one millionth of the gold and it's worth one one millionth of the economy. Well, what happens if the economy grows as it was in the 19, you know, when FDR kicked uh, the, the New Deal into, 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 into action? Um, what happens if the economy increases 20 percent? Um, if, if now you've got a $1,200,000 economy, but you still only have a million dollars worth of gold in Fort Knox, what happens is right. every dollar becomes, you know, uh, it, it, it doesn't become 80 cents, but um, it, its purchasing power gets distorted, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And so the goal of fractional banking was to give the ability of the currency Give, give the currency the ability to grow with the economy without having to buy gold from foreign countries, which could be used as a weapon against us during times of war, as we learned during World War One. And um, so, you know, the, the logic behind it makes perfect sense to me. The problem is that the way it's been used has been largely to let government borrow money at one value and pay it off at a different value. If you have 2% inflation every year and and the government borrows a billion dollars and it has to pay it off 20 years from now or over a 20 year period, every year that they pay it off, they're paying off 2% less than what they borrowed because of inflation. So two, four, six, eight, you know, or it doesn't quite accumulate like that. But but um, that's why governments love this. They, they love, you know, this kind of steady inflation rate. It's why the Fed tries to maintain that 2% inflation rate. Um, and, then the, and then the average person is stuck in this, well, I've got to get ahead of the inflation rate because, the, because interest payments are rarely at the inflation rate. So you can't just park your money in a CD and expect to keep up with, with inflation. Right now, CDs are paying like one-tenth of 1%. Inflation is running a little over 1% right now. And it's probably going to run 2 or 3% this year. So, uh, you know, what's happened is that between the bankers and the government, everybody's been kind of abusing the system. And that's why the minimum wage was, you know, a buck and a half, two bucks when I was a kid. And now it's $7 and we're talking about making it $15. It really has very little to do with the minimum wage. It has everything to do with the collapse of the value of the dollar. And... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's a, it's a much larger topic than that, but that's the, that's the simple a- a- explanation. Rags, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Josh in Billings, Montana. Hey, Josh, what's up? Hey, uh, I, I just want to say I think there's some ways we can break people away from this uh, death cult. cult. You know, it's, uh, 
it's wedge issues. It's things like uh, this uh, Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, we got uh, we're trying to make it cheaper to bring foreign oil into the into the country. You know why aren't we? Uh, why aren't the Democrats pushing on? Uh, you know, let's make all oil domestic oil. You know, instead yeah. and and uh, let's you know get some of these sixty and seventy thousand dollar a year jobs here that are permanent instead of temporary for a for a pipeline. I'm with you. And, and, and in that regard, you've got some unions that are really shooting themselves in the foot. They, uh, and of course, unions are democracies and union leadership has to respond to its members. And if its members are offered a one or two year contract to build a pipeline, and that means that for a year or two, they're going to be able to really provide well for their families, knowing that that's going to end, but in the hopes that something better will come along, you know, they're going to fight for that. And I get that. Uh, even though it's killing the planet and, you know, and it's making the billionaires richer and it's importing oil from Canada rather than, you know, d- domestic production. And, and it's not even energy that is safe and clean. But your point is very, very well made and well taken, Josh. Thank you very much for the call. Marty in Evergreen Park, Illinois. Hey, Marty, what's up? Medellin, Colombia, and how they are managing the coronavirus. I had the pleasure of spending three weeks there last month, was able to get away, you know, when all the bad weather hit the Midwest. But the way that they are managing the coronavirus, if we did half of the measures that they did over there, we would have never had as many problems with this as we do. In every like point of entry in every like public space somebody is there making sure that your hands are sanitized and that your temperature is taken and that you're properly wearing a mask and um it's just everybody just does it over there it's it's really uh, uh it's really amazing but just how like different <laughs> we we yeah. are handling i have uh, one of one of my uh one of my oldest friends he's uh, somebody i went to college with has a house in puerto vallarta he lives half the year there and half of the year near Lansing, Michigan. And uh, he was telling me an email the other day, the exact same thing. You know, I mean, everybody's masked up. Everybody's taking, you know, everybody takes this seriously. The police will stop you if you're not wearing a mask. And and then one of my nieces lives in Mexico, is married to a Mexican, has several children and has lived there for a number of years. And she's been, I've been following her on Facebook mostly. And the same deal. People are taking it very, very seriously in other parts of the world. It's just... you know, this Republican ideology is just crazy. There's a piece on Raw Story right now about how people living in a fancy apartment building in uh, Washington, D.C. that has a lot of Republican staffers in it. The Republican staffers are refusing to wear masks in the elevators. And it's got, you know, some of the older people in this building flipped out, but there's nothing they can do. It's, It's just this, only in America, right? It's crazy. listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.